and turn to Zechariah chapter 9. Zechariah chapter 9. Almost at the end of the Old Testament. As we come to this section of the book of Zechariah, there is a uh, point of discussion among scholars, those who feel like an author has to have the exact same tone and um, style and everything else throughout the whole book, feel as though Zechariah 9 through 14 must have been written later, must have been written by someone else, all of those sorts of things. However, the reality is that we look at a similar thing with the book of Isaiah. 40 to 66 is different from 1 to 39. And while there are some liberal critical scholars that would say you have Isaiah and Deutero or 2nd Isaiah, conservative scholars recognize that there is a distinct reality that if you write something at a different point in your life or for a different purpose, it's not going to have the same form. The same person can publish a family newsletter, a legal brief, and like there can be multiple things that the same person does. So to say, well, the form of writing is different, that means that it can't be the same author is kind of a ridiculous argument. Uh, there was, I think, some reasonable consideration of the way that authors put their works together. But that went way too far, because if you have the assumption that it's not from God, it's just the works of men, then there's pretty much no limit. You can start to say, well, there were 15 different authors, and they were piecemealed together in this way, and there's just no, there's no boundaries for it. right? If the boundary is God wrote it through the author who said that he wrote it, then there are things that you can consider, like where was he when he wrote it, and why is it this form versus that form, but it's under the umbrella of the author who said he wrote it, the inspiration of God, and all of those sorts of things. So there's not such a wide range of possibilities. Along these lines, if you encounter, either at a Christian bookstore or something online, some new idea that you've never heard of, there is a possibility that maybe it's just something that you hadn't come across and you should consider it seriously. But the more likely possibility is that there's someone who's trying to get a book published or create a following, and they've come up with a new idea. And so when it comes to the Bible as a whole, innovation, new ideas about the Bible, are generally not helpful because it's not something that changes over the course of time, right? So the consensus among so-called scientists on the origin of the world has changed any number of times between the time of Darwin and the present day. And that's because they're just guessing, right? And they're guessing in a framework that has rejected God. So in the space of a hundred and some years, you can have a huge amount of change in what the current opinion is about all those sorts of things. When it comes to the Bible, if it is a fixed body of work from a God who doesn't change, we would not expect a ton of new ideas. And so I don't want to belabor that point too much, but just you see this over and over again. Well, it's claimed that Paul wrote this book, but actually it was someone just borrowing Paul's name in A.D. 300. Or it's claimed that John wrote this book, but it was actually just someone borrowing John's name in A.D. 150. 
if we start out with the premise that the person who wrote it is lying about who the author is, why should we trust the rest of what they have to say? There, beyond the question of whether that was a common practice, and it would be argued, no, not really. Now, I'm not saying it never happened, because there, were, there have been a number of so-called Gospels that have come out in the last 2,000 years. But again, what is the, what's the thing we use to evaluate those? How do they fit with the message of the rest of Scripture? What was the attitude of the early church toward them? And those sorts of things help to guide us with whether they're actually legitimate or not. The reality is there are thousands of words and hundreds of messages that were verbal, that were written down, that are not preserved in the Bible for us today. That doesn't mean that they were worthless when they were given. They were authoritative to the people of their day. They were useful in God's purpose for accomplishing various things. But in God's wisdom, they are not necessary for us today. We have sufficient and more than sufficient revelation about who God is, how he has worked in the world, and all of those sorts of things in order to live in a way that's pleasing to him. How can I argue this? Because to the extent that you have someone like Enoch who walks with God when pretty much none of the Bible has been written, if he was able to do it when none of the Bible had been written, then you and I are more than capable of doing it with what we have in the Bible so we don't have to have this fear that we've, that we've missed out on really important things or what if this new thing comes out and completely changes our view of God and, and all those sorts of things. It, it's not something that we need to be concerned about. There will continue to be new revelation of God. And this doesn't mean that the Bible is worthless. I just mean like when you look at the end times, there are clearly people who are prophesying, people who are having visions, people who are proclaiming things about God that might or might not be things that are already recorded in the Bible. So God is not done revealing himself, but at the moment, what we have is sufficient and adequate for guiding us to follow after God. So with all that background in mind, we come to uh, Zechariah 9, and there is this idea of a king who is coming, and he is coming... Uh, we see, for example, chapter 9, verse 9, Your king is coming to you, just and endowed with salvation. And he's going to come down through the land of Syria. He's going to deliver Judah and Ephraim. We see that in chapter 9. And then there's a blessing for Judah and Ephraim, a gathering of the people. There is Lebanon that is going to be uh, sort of conquered there is Jerusalem is going to be attacked, but God will deliver. There are false prophets who will be put to shame. Chapter 13, uh, the enemies of Jerusalem are going to be ultimately defeated, and God will rule over all things. That's the really quick rundown of chapters 9 through 14. We're going to start here in chapter 9 and sort of see the, uh, the development of this idea of the coming of the true king. So let's start, um, and let's read, uh, let's read verses 1 through, well, let's just start with verse 1. Who wants to read chapter 9, verse 1? Zechariah 9, verse 1. Jim, thanks. Okay, 
So this word burden, um, any, any ideas? Does that sound familiar to anyone? Or how would, we, how would we think about this idea of burden? Sandra? Okay, yeah, a heavy weight. And connected with the idea of it being Zachariah's message, how, how, are we, how should we think about that? Okay, so there's this task, a burden, a weight, a message has been laid upon Zechariah, and he has to deliver it. And we tend to think of the ministry of the prophets as sort of being, I don't know if we would say glamorous, but we would say they have this special privilege or opportunity to foretell the future, and I think it's easy in some ways potentially for us to romanticize that. And we don't think about the fact that if God has given you a responsibility and you don't carry out that responsibility, that there is accountability from God, that there is a sense of, I have not done my duty, you know, something along those lines. Think about what Paul says. He says, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. He had a sense of a task from God, a stewardship from God, a commission from God laid upon him that he had to fulfill. And a lot of the prophets spoke similarly of their responsibility before God. So here's this message that God has given to Zechariah that he has a responsibility and a burden and a necessity to deliver. Now, it's not that the message itself is oppressive, but it is weighty and it is significant and he does need to carry out the delivering of it. Um, And it says, against the land of Hadrach, and as I mentioned a moment ago, a lot of people would see this as Uh, in the region of what is now Syria. Uh, Particularly to the north, we see uh, Damascus as the resting place. Um, So it's it's starting in that region. All right, let's read verses 2 through 10. Who wants to read 2 through 10? Jonathan? Uh, ten. Rejoice greatly, O God of Zion. Shout in triumph, O God of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation. Humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, a whole donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem, and the bow of war will be cut off. He will speak the peace. He will speak peace to the nation. From the river 
Okay. So we have uh, sort of this, I don't know if we would call it a descent or an ascent. It's a southward mo movement of the king as he comes to Jerusalem. Okay. So I don't know how well, you, I'm sure you can't read this text, but I'm just trying to give you a little bit of a visual of what we're looking at here. Can you see it over there? Okay. Not the words, but just the, uh, the picture. Oh, it's in the way. Here, let's move it out of the way. Yeah, I don't want to make you stand up. That would be... There you go. All right. So Hamath is to the north. Damascus is going to be a little bit south of that. The proportions are not 100% perfect because I'm just drawing it off a sketch here. You have the Sea of Galilee. You have the Dead Sea. You've got the Jordan River. You've got Jerusalem down here. If you come down along the coast, you have Tyre and Sidon. And then you have the cities of the Philistines along the coast. And those are to the southwest. What's that? Okay. So, we have Syria to the north, Tyre and Sidon to the northwest, cities of the Philistines to the southwest. And then this is all sort of moving down toward Jerusalem. So, as we look here in verse 2, Hamath that borders on it, Tyre and Sidon are seen as very wise. Tyre is a rich city with fortresses, um, rich from the profit of trade. And so uh, Tyre and Sidon were well known for trade. The Phoenicians, they, they invent an alphabet. They um, travel around the Mediterranean Sea, do lots of different things. Um, it says God is going to dispossess her and cast her wealth into the sea and she'll be consumed with fire. So she's proud and secure and thinks that she is uh, without any possibility of problems, right? And so if I remember correctly, let me flip over there and double check this. All right, so it's King of Babylon in Isaiah 14. And then I want to say Ezekiel 28 refers to the King of Tyre. Let me see here real quick. Yeah, say to the king or the leader of Tyre, because you've lifted up your heart and said, I am a God. You think you have wisdom and understanding. Your heart is lifted up because of your riches. Take a lament over the king of Tyre and say, you are in Eden, the garden of God. So there's this simultaneous, simultaneous condemnation of the pride of men in the city of, and the people of Tyre and against the pride of Satan, which stands behind the pride of that city and that place. And so there's a repetition of that idea that we see in Ezekiel 28, uh, repeated here as well um, in Zechariah 9, verses 2 through 4. Any questions or thoughts on that? Is that making sense? Yes. Uh-huh. Because of all the things in the in the news about, yeah. Let me look here. So we have, uh, yeah. So the Gaza that is contested today. Yeah. So the Gaza that's kind of contested today is kind of a region that looks kind of like this. 
So yes, and I was thinking the same thing, and I hadn't checked that, so I just looked it up here, and it's it's still in the samely roughly the same place, southwest of Jerusalem, but along the coast and bordering with, uh, I think Saudi Arabia. Is it Egypt? So you've got Israel, you've got Israel to present day Israel is kind of a wedge-shaped thing like this. And the Gaza area is right there. And then, let me zoom out here. I guess it technically is Egypt. Egypt is to the west. I think it is technically Egypt. But, um, oh, I see here. Saudi Arabia is more south and east. But yeah, there's the the what the, the so-called Gaza Strip is a as a region that's still contested presently. So, all right. So does that? Um, are we clear on that, Bruce? You had a question. Go ahead. Uh, there, I think, was a time period where the Phoenician Empire was as great or perhaps greater than the Babylonian Empire, but these things kind of ebb and flow over the years. So, um, Maggie, was it you or Braden that was studying this in school about the Phoenicians and the alphabet and Tyre and Sidon? Maybe it wasn't this year. Was it, Maggie? Okay. But in, in sort of the history of civilizations, you have... Um, the Babylon, you have like, what is it, Acadia, I think is seen to be one of the very early empires that's in the Tigris and Euphrates region. Babylon, as far as the Babylonian Empire, kind of rises up. Uh, I think there's a time period where Tyre and Sidon are under Babylon, and there's a time period where they're their own thing again, and kind of down through the years, it kind of ebbs and flows. But um, Babylon, I think, was primarily, though not exclusively, interested in the conquest of land. And because Tyre and Sidon are right there on the edge of the sea, there's a degree to which they could simultaneously control large swaths of the sea while Babylon is controlling much of the land mass in the region. I think that's historically accurate. We could check on that further. Robert. All right. Sure. Yeah, so let's say, um, let's say if you're talking about um, a thousand years before Christ came, they would have been more significant in power. What we're looking at now, I'm trying to remember the dates we were discussing, 8400, 8350, somewhere in there. They still have some measure of power. Greece... Macedonian Empire, I'm trying to remember the dates on that. You remember the dates on that? I want to say Rome took over, let's say, well, Antiochus Epiphanes was a ruler of the Macedonian Empire. That was eight, uh, 167 BC. So Rome would have taken over 100 to 150 years before the coming of Christ. So Macedonia, Greece is rising to power. Uh, Tyre and Sidon are still in power. As Greece rises to power, they recede. As the Romans come to power, they regain a little bit, but not as much as they had before. So that's so. There's a lot of ebb and flow throughout the region. At this moment, they're still a force to be reckoned with. 
which is why I think they're seen as a threat to the remnant of Israel who is scattered. They don't have a they don't have trade routes, they don't have fortresses, they don't have lots of wealth. And so for them, regardless of where Tyre and Sidon are relative to everybody else as far as a world power, they're still greater than the people of Israel and a threat to them. And so they're probably looking at them and saying, well, what about these people? And Zechariah is saying the king is going to come and march through and sort of break their power. Any other questions on those first few verses? Sandra? Yes, so we'll get to that in verse 9. Um, but yes, not. there are kings that God uses to accomplish sort of a preparing of the way, but I think the king in view in verse 9 is, is the Messiah. So the response of the Philistines to the conquest of Tyre and Sidon, so if there's this southward motion of conquest coming down like this to Jerusalem, if Tyre and Sidon fall, if they fall, what are the next cities along the coast going to be thinking? What about us, right? So that's what verse 5 is saying. Ashkelon will see it and be afraid. Gaza will writhe in great pain, and Ekron, for her expectation, has been confounded. A mongrel race will dwell in Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of the Philistines and remove their blood from their mouth and their detestable things from between their teeth. So the pride of the Philistines was in their military power, in their gods, in their... Um, for them, a really big deal was having lots of kids, having lots of crops, catching lots of fish. Those were like their three big goals in life. Um, and we're like, well, that's dumb. But let's be honest, that's what a lot of people's goal has been down through history. So um, they are in a scenario in which they are going to be conquered uh, in, uh, in preparation or in association with the coming of the king. When it says removing the blood from their mouth and detestable things from between their teeth, any thoughts on what that might be referring to? What did the, what did the Old Testament say? Uh, Acts 15, what was a practice of the Gentiles that the early church said not to do to keep peace with Jewish brethren in the churches? Eating blood. Now, um, we look at it and we're kind of like, well, we want things to be drained of blood, but we're not as picky about it as picky, um, particular might be a better word. We're not as particular about it as um, for Muslims or Jewish people today. They have very specific rituals and things that they do to make sure as much as possible of all the blood is drained out and um, in a very precise way like that. So you have things that are kosher, for Jewish people, you have things that are halal for Islamic people. And a lot of that has to do with not eating blood because of what they see to be requirements and regulations from God or uh, respectively Allah, who is not God, but they see it worship as God. Um, so in connection with that, um, if the Philistines are uh, pagans, they're going to have no regard for those kinds of practices. Um, and so in the law, what sort of animals were described as detestable? Yeah, so you couldn't eat shrimp. What else? Split hoof. I was like, if you cut a toad in half, you can't eat it. I did know what you meant. Yeah. 
So, um, pigs, right? So, there seems to have been some historical evidence that the Philistines were fond of eating seafood and or swine, which were both things that were not uh, allowed in, in Judaism. So, to the extent that they are purged of those practices is a sign of their defeat, which really interestingly leads to the end of that verse, verse 7, there'll be a remnant for our God and be like a clan in Judah and Ekron like a Jebusite. Which is an unexpected turn, right? We would have kind of thought that it was their power is broken and they're destroyed and they cease to exist as a people. But what seems to be happening instead? If it says they become like a clan, there'll be a small remnant which is now a part of the people of Judah, like a subset of the people of Judah. And so think about the Jebusites. What happens with the Jebusites? They're technically Canaanites, right? But they become, uh, and I'm trying to think, the Jebusites weren't the ones that deceived Joshua. This was in the time of David. David conquers them, doesn't wipe them out. They basically become servants to the people of Israel, as I recall. And so there's a parallel scene here, just as the Jebusites found a place with the people of God, some of the Philistines will find a place with the people of God. Which is surprising because we just think, well, it's just going to be wiped out. Um, And then verse 8, I'll camp around my house because of an army. No oppressor will pass over them anymore, for now I have seen with my eyes. And so as we look at this description of what's taking place in verse 8, it definitely seems to be a deliverance of God. And and an end to the constant wars and conquests and all those sorts of things that keep happening for the people of Israel. Um, We see, uh, I forgot to mention this as we were going through, the, the idea of Hamath. Uh, goes back to the border lines, border, the, the proposed borders for uh, the nation of Israel, which they never fully occupied, right? You will be from the entrance of Hamath all the way down to the Negev, the south, the south region, and then all the way over to this point in the east, and then to the sea in the west, the Mediterranean. And Israel never fully occupied all that territory. So to the extent that the conquest and so forth, goes down from this point that they never really conquered. It's saying, you know, here's the whole land of Israel as it was meant to be long ago and never actually took place. Uh, Verse 9. Rejoice, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. We see some of this in the Psalms. We see some of it uh, incorporated in various hymns. Behold, your king is coming, just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So there's significant truths about who he is. Also in verse 10, I'll cut off the chariot and the horse and the bow of war. He will speak peace. His dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So what is he described as here? Verse 9, he would be righteous, righteousness and justice. Hebrews 5.8 points out, although he was a son, 
He learned obedience through what he suffered, Romans 5. As by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. So we look at the history of the people of Israel. Did they ever have a ruler who was truly righteous? No. Even David, the man after God's own heart, has some really significant things that if they were to take place in our lives, we would question whether we even have a relationship with God, let alone whether we walk with God and are you know, close with Him. right? And so even David, even many of these others, are not, are not righteous. Even, um, even Hezekiah has moments where he is not trusting God as he should. right? And he's one of the last great righteous kings of the people of Judah. Um, Genesis 49 uh, sort of is the backdrop against which this prophecy is made. Um, this uh, Second Samuel, God's covenant with David, he's a son of David. Uh, Isaiah speaks extensively about the righteousness of the Messiah. We see that he comes, he is endowed with bringing salvation. Uh, either he is victorious, he is saved from death, or he is bringing salvation like he is bringing salvation to others. It's possible that there's an element of both. He is delivered from death and brings deliverance to his people. Isaiah 46, 13 says, I bring near my righteousness. My salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel my glory. And then Isaiah 51, Give attention to me, my people, and give ear to me, my nation, for a law will go out from me, and I will set my justice for a light to the peoples. My righteousness draws near, my salvation has gone out, and my arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands hope for me, and for my arm they wait. Which again, what did the verses just get done saying? The, the power of Tyre and Sidon will be broken. Some of the Philistines will become a remnant and find salvation. When the Messiah comes, the coastlands will hear and wait for their deliverance from God. Or as there's another place where it says, the people who sat in darkness will hear will see a great light, right? That refers to Galilee of the Gentiles up here. So the coastlands, the Philistines that were always attacking people, the Gentiles that were seen as up around Galilee, they're going to find salvation, the Philistines are going to find salvation, and God's own people are going to find salvation. So what they were hoping for from the Messiah was that they would be delivered. And God says, I'm not going to do that, or at least I'm not going to do just that. I'm going to deliver you, I'm going to deliver these people, I'm going to deliver these people, and I'm not going to do it just in a physical sense, which is probably more of what many of them wanted, because at the end of the day, that's what most of us want, right? We want to have a comfortable place to live, for our enemies not to attack us, to be left alone, to live our lives the way that we want to live them. And God says in the Messiah, it's not going to stop there. Not only are you going to be delivered from the oppression of people making your life difficult, but more importantly, you're going to be delivered from your sin, which is the real problem. And so we definitely see that in the coming of Jesus as the Messiah, which is something that we strive to remember this time of year, right? He is also humble. Uh, we see this in verse 9. He is humble, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Um, 
gentleness, humility. There's the parallel to Moses in Numbers 12. Moses was a very humble man. Isaiah 53, he was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. He was despised and we esteemed him not. He has borne our grief and carried our sorrow, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Jesus spoke of it in this way, Come all who are labor, who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He is a king, but his reign is characterized by peace. He's not riding on a war horse. He's riding on a donkey. Right? You don't typically ride a donkey into battle. Uh, some people have tried to make a significant idea that he is um, that kings never did this. They never rode into battle, or not never rode into battle. They never rode on a donkey, and so this was the first time this has ever happened, so that was the significance. But the significance was probably more the fulfillment of these words in Zechariah 9 and the picture that he is coming as a peaceful king, which is ironic because what happens later that week is he's accused of being someone stirring up riots and dissent and trying to overthrow Rome and rejecting the leadership of the religious authorities in Jerusalem and the very fact of the way that he came into Jerusalem showed that wasn't what he was coming for. Then the chapter continues in a sense of peace for Judah and Ephraim. Okay, uh, Let's read verses 11 through uh, 17. Robert, do you want to do that? possible that 10.1 also goes with this section. The tone seems to shift in 10.2, but we can pick that up uh, later. Um, so we see here, um, what is the reason for God doing this deliverance? Verse 11. Okay. So he has made a covenant. Now, the blood of the covenant idea potentially um, picks up in Exodus. Uh, it could all go all the way back to Genesis, right? Because God basically cuts two animals in half, passes between them in his covenant with Abraham, right? But there's a similar thing that happens in Exodus chapter 24. Um, let, me, let me read that for you here really quickly. Just a verse or two here. 
uh, Moses takes the blood and sprinkles it on the people, Exodus 24.8, and says, Behold the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So God made a covenant with the people at Mount Sinai, right? And that was a covenant of blood. On the basis of that, despite the fact that they didn't fulfill their side of it, what does it say? He delivers them from the waterless pit. Uh, the idea of the waterless pit, um, some people see it as referring to the Babylonian exile, but um, the exile is not referred to as a pit anywhere in the Old Testament. Uh, in Psalms, what do we see this idea. What is sort of the imagery in Psalms about the pit? Probably some familiar words that come to mind from the Psalms. Okay, the idea of destruction, Braden. Okay, there's connection with Sheol, there's connection with destruction, the idea of death. Um, you have brought me up out of the miry pit, set my feet on a rock, right? There's that, I think, in, in one of the Psalms. And so that imagery is used, I think, more often of death than it is of exile. So there's sort of this idea that God's delivered them from destruction, from death, from their enemies. Um, who do we see in the Old Testament as being in a pit? Jeremiah, okay. Joseph, okay. So Joseph and Jeremiah are two notable examples. Um, Trying to think, wasn't Elijah or Elisha briefly in a pit? I could be wrong on that. I know Jeremiah was. Yeah. So there's there's a number of people who are basically thrown into empty wells. There might have been some mud at the bottom, but they don't have they're not full of water. So they're not being drowned. They're just being imprisoned, right? Now, think about Joseph's experience. Why was he thrown in the pit? Jealousy. And what did they actually want to do to him? Kill him. Why is Jeremiah thrown in the pit? Same thing. Jealousy, wanting to kill him. God spares his life. So from at least those two examples, and possibly more in the Old Testament, there is the idea of deliverance from death. God has done that for his people, despite the fact that a number of them are the ones who have actually done this to the prophets, right? So there's the, the idea of God's mercy here. Um, verse 12 talks about them being prisoners who have hope, prisoners of hope. Return to the stronghold, to the fortress. I will restore double to you. That I think has um, almost an allusion to what God does for Job after his affliction. Right, And then the rest of this here is sort of the idea of God sort of forms his people into an arrow, fits them to his bow, shoots them into the land to destroy his enemies, and then there's all this idea of, uh, particularly in verse 15, they'll devour and trample on the sling stones, so the enemies are slinging rocks against them, and God defeats them, and they trample on all of, it's like, all of the spent ammunition is all over the ground and it gets ground into the dust as God's people arrive. So it's all these images of war sort of all mixed up together. When it says they drink and they'll be full like the horns of the altar, it's basically saying they're going to kill their enemies because the horns of the altar is what they would have sprinkled with blood in the various rituals of the sacrifice. And the Lord will save them as the flock. And then it turns from, from these images of war to images of peace. They're like a flock that the shepherd loves. 
They're like precious stones that you would find in a crown that you dig up and excavate and mine out of the ground. And then verse 17, comeliness and beauty, grain and new wine, the young men and the virgins, sort of this, this expectation of hope. Like, there is definitely a beauty in faithfulness of marriage, in faithfulness of serving God, in faithfulness of a long life lived well, right? But there's also sort of this imagery in which people, I don't know if I'm explaining this very well, when young people are at the peak of their strength and about to start families and all those sorts of things, there's something that, that that's a sign of peace and prosperity, right? In contrast to like World War II where a bunch of the young men go off and they're killed in battle, right? Or in contrast to our present day society in which there are not a lot of, of virgins who are pure and innocent and all that sort of thing when it comes to young women. Do they understand sort of the picture that he's getting at here? It moves from, from deliverance through war and destruction to peace and prosperity. And that's the hope that he holds out for his people. All right, we'll stop there. Any questions real quick as we wrap Norma? Yes, I would say the entrance of Jesus in Jerusalem should have made people say, Zechariah 9, yes. Particularly the scribes and Pharisees, but they were too busy hating Jesus to see the illusion. Or they saw it and it made them hate him all the more. So yes, this would be connected to the triumphal entry. Jonathan? Yes. So there's the, the cutting of the covenant. He takes, is it a dove and a sheep? And walks between them, the t- flaming torch. Yeah, in Genesis. Uh, do these chapters start looking, you know, I would say yes. I would say it like this. Sort of like uh, when you see things that is, are alluded to in these chapters, you should think the kingdom is at hand. It would maybe be the... Which is the message that Jesus and John the Baptist bring, right? And then, because of the rejection of the people, I think there's a sense in which the kingdom moves further away for a time, right? And then there's a time when it is brought near and without being thwarted again. So, All right, let's wrap up there, and we will head into the morning service here in just a few moments. Let's pray. Father, as we see these great truths about all of the words that you spoke about the coming of the Messiah, and again, just the power that you demonstrate, the love and care that you have for people to whom you have made promises, despite their often unfaithfulness, despite uh, doubt and all of these other sorts of things, not that it's an excuse for us to remain in those things, but you are gracious toward uh, your people despite their failings. And then to consider the fact that when these things were, were, were hints of them being fulfilled before their very eyes and, and Jesus is born of a virgin to fulfill the words of Isaiah, he comes triumphantly, some 30 years later into Jerusalem and, and is uh, tied in with these words of Zechariah and then yet the people quickly turned away because what you were bringing before them was not the thing that they thought they wanted. 
Lord, help us to realize that we too could be prone to rejecting the very fulfillment of prophecy before our own eyes and stand condemned instead of blessed. And uh, that, that would be a sober warning that instead we would be attentive to the things that you have said and look eagerly for your coming as the New Testament urges your people to do and that we would have those things in mind as the backdrop for all that is being remembered even in the next week or two. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.